Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today we're asking whether commodities are heading into a green cycle. Commodities have ridden atop the COVID-19 recovery. After such a dramatic surge and with demand showing no signs of slowing down, investors are wondering whether another commodity super cycle is afoot. Such super cycles feature a sustained spell of abnormally strong demand for commodities that producers struggle to match, sparking a rally and level shifting prices that can last years, even decades. The last super cycle started back in 2002, with China entering a phase of roaring economic growth. So, are we heading for a super cycle? Our expert global panel from UBS is on hand to answer that key question. And with inflationary concerns very much the worry of the day, pretty much everywhere right now, it's also worth mentioning inflationary pressures in the context of accelerating decarbonisation. Our panel will also talk us through some of the different drivers for the likely positive inflationary outlook over the long term in an SI context. Let's start with Wayne Gordon, Senior Investment Analyst in the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO in Singapore. Wayne Gordon... Why has this idea about greenflation, the start of a green cycle for metals, for for certain commodities, why has that risen to prominence now in a way that perhaps it hasn't before? Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. And it's something that is is really pressing on efforts to make this transition to a low carbon economy. I guess we just cast our mind back to the, the Paris Agreement and as governments began to Uh, install legislation and began to uh, move towards trying to remove uh, carbon from uh, a lot of the things that we consume, uh, predominantly, at least in the first stages, being energy, uh, and then it'll move to other segments such as agriculture and so forth. It's very clear that uh, we need to, uh, in the first instance, uh, reduce the amount of carbon that we emit uh, from consuming uh, things like you know gasoline and uh, electricity and and so forth, and so this shift then entails a move to building infrastructure, building uh, capacity to generate renewable energy and use renewable fuels. That shift is going to come with a significant pickup in metal intensity. Um, just as an example, if you take the average electric vehicle, uh, it uses about four to five times the amount of copper that a traditional uh, combustion engine vehicle would. And so as you see government's commitments uh, to increasing the prominence of electric vehicles and so forth, that therefore, I suppose, um, uh, puts forward the idea that the consumption of metals, in particular in this case, copper, lithium, cobalt, um, rare earths, all these things that are used in in battery making and and, uh, uh, the infrastructure behind charging stations and uh, upgrading the electricity grid and so forth, these things are all going to require more production of those uh, uh, transition metals that we've talked about. Yeah. And given that backdrop then, Wayne, it's pretty clear why this has come to a head, you know, for 2022. And I know in some of the research pieces, you and your colleagues write about this idea of the year ahead or the rest of the year ahead as a as very much a transition, a transition year. Can you tell us a bit about how 
some of the kind of the ebbs and flows that you've already talked about will bleed not just into this but across other sectors as well and, and why that gives this sense of this year as being very much a, an inflection point yeah i think there's a there's a couple of key things that came out of cop 26 and one was um that we needed to accelerate our approach to reducing emissions simply temperatures are rising more quickly than we expected and there's this sort of need to uh, accelerate the reduction in carbon emissions that that we uh, that we are making and if we think back to around the middle of the year uh, the IPCC report, uh, which clearly rang the bell on the urgency of uh, getting this task done. Of course, as we come out of the pandemic and there is significant government spending behind uh, many initiatives, this idea of building back better has really caught on. Uh, governments have made significant commitments at COP26 to reduce emissions, even brought forward some of those uh, commitments to be net zero. And also on the corporate side, we've seen a number of, in fact, most predominant corporates committing to uh, being carbon neutral over the next uh, 20, 30 years. So this emphasis on getting ready and the preparedness uh, needed uh, really came to the fore. Interestingly, uh, what has driven this emphasis as well has been the energy crisis that we've seen, um, not just in the European Union, but also in areas out here in Asia and also in the United States. That, of course, has sort of put front in mind this need for energy security uh, and also the need for renewables to be able to uh, be stored and used to provide that security during periods where there is a significant pickup in demand. So that means that not only do we need to turn to alternative fuels and, and focus more on um, the technology behind things like hydrogen, uh, but also increase the level of battery storage. For example, we have for renewable energy from wind and, and solar and, and so on. So I think a combination of those factors has, including uh, the issues around uh, COVID-19 and the disruption that that, of course, has caused in the community and the sort of references that people have made to issues with respect to climate change in the future. All of those things have really amplified uh, the attention of not just governments, but also the private sector and finance in mobilising the money required to do the investments to then uh, approach this net zero uh, more quickly than we uh, than we had expected to earlier. To what degree has the pandemic and the backdrop you've described so eloquently for us already underscored the need for structural change uh, when it comes to you know commodities, commodity capacity, and also potentially also structurally higher prices as a consequence? Has it had this accelerative effect? Yeah, look, I, I think it has, and I think uh, there is evidence across the board and. Uh, a key thing that I would highlight is the rapid decline in inventories that we've seen across the board in many of these key base metals. And of course, the pandemic uh, sort of bore out the sensitivities of supply chains, the sensitivities of the production side, uh, i.e. Uh, with respect to the health and welfare of, of employees and, and people who are 
producing many of these materials, miners and so forth. And uh, so these elements, I think, have uh, really turned people's mind to the challenges we've got in front of us. I think the, the other element for me is that, you know, copper prices are at very elevated levels. Nickel prices also at elevated levels and, and so forth. And also those metals that, you know, we don't talk too much about, things like lithium and so forth. Many of these are in supply side deficits, at least given the projections on demand uh, and the projects that we see in the pipeline over the next uh, uh, three to five years. Many of these commodities are going to be in uh, deficits over that period. And so we're going to be consistently drawing down on those inventories. Now, this is occurring at the same time that we've seen a significant slowing in the Chinese property sector. Now, traditionally, uh, if the Chinese property sector was to slow, uh, things like copper prices would come down quite sharply. But on this particular occasion, we have seen, even though we've seen a slowing in those what have been, uh, let's say, traditional pathways to demand, such as construction in China, we've still seen prices holding up very sharply for this underinvestment uh, from probably the last probably seven to eight years in the production of many of these commodities, which is now starting to really show up in the uh, official inventories and so forth that we have. So I think it's the focus by corporates and also by governments is not just driven by the, the, the regulatory approach and the, the commitments made around the COP26 and so on, but also by the hard reality that our transition may be limited by the fact that we just don't have the sufficient commodities to, um, to build the infrastructure that we need. Wayne, perhaps just finally, uh, and sort of taking all of what we've already discussed as the backdrop, can you talk to us a little bit about what this means for investors? How do these themes impact the decisions that they're going to make in the months ahead? And perhaps you can reflect a little bit on the conversations that, that, that you have in terms of what's preoccupying people. How, do, how does the canny investor need to take all of this on board to make sure they're best positioned as we move forward through 22? Yeah, absolutely. So that, that comes, Tom, that comes twofold. Uh, firstly, investors have to be prepared for at least some parts of the supply chain and the prices uh, that are reflecting the relative tightness in those supply chains will be more persistent for longer. So, you know, we are in that position. We talked about it right at the beginning uh, with respect to this sort of green inflation idea. That green inflation idea is a reality. And that is a reality uh, because we simply need to encourage uh, those miners and producers and manufacturers to invest more heavily in capacity uh, so that, you know, we can uh, bring forward the, the materials we need and, and be able to use the, the technologies to reduce emissions. The second point is around climate change itself. Uh, so climate change already we... Uh, see by the IPCC numbers that um, temperatures are rising quickly, and that is causing a lot of, for example, weather volatility in markets. And of course, that volatility causes a lot of disruption. And it indeed only exacerbates often many of the shortages that, that, that we face. So for investors looking at the sector, they need to take a highly diversified approach 
largely because, yes, um, many of the very, uh, can I say, quite um, uh, sexy items that often investors look at with respect to transitions, such as, you know, electric vehicles, uh, renewable energy, uh, and so forth. Those items, uh, yes, they require additional investment, but valuations in many of those companies, such as in many EV companies, are already extremely elevated. Uh, where there is better value is in some of the upstream sectors and some of the supply chains, which still require enormous amounts of investment and valuations in some of these segments are quite reasonable, uh, such as in a lot of the key miners uh, that are going to produce many of these key materials, in a lot of the infrastructure that's going to bring these materials to market. Many of these segments are quite defensive particularly in an environment where interest rates are rising, you know, bond prices are moving around a lot, and there's a little bit more volatility in broader equity markets. So I think that that's where uh, investors should be focused on in putting their money to work, in actually delivering, in delivering uh, many of the ambitions we have on the transition to net zero. Second and last point I'd make is with respect to thinking about also the investment side with respect to nature and uh, biodiversity. Clearly, to produce a lot of the commodities that we need, we require water, for example. We require different outputs to make many of these mines viable, labour, etc. And so investors also can look at some of these other elements which may not traditionally have been focused on producing wind power, for example, or producing electric vehicles, but more cumulatively go to the overall tackling of climate change and the risks that we face with respect to climate change going forward. Wayne Gordon. Next, let's hear from Stephanie Choi, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for CIO Asia in UBS Global Wealth Management in Hong Kong. Stephanie develops ideas and resources to support UBS's sustainable investing leadership aspirations. Stephanie, I want to start by picking up on a report from the end of last year, actually, which was looking at the inflationary pressures of accelerating decarbonisation. Obviously, inflation is perhaps the big preoccupation right now amongst investors, I'm sure, amongst analysts alike. Just rolling the clock back to that report and some of the earlier reflections on that. Perhaps you can start off by telling us a bit about what accelerating decarbonisation does mean in inflationary terms. Yes. So last year, the time of the publication was the fourth quarter of last year. And I think last year, it was pretty evident that inflation runaway inflation was partly attributable to uh, runaway energy prices. And I believe, you know, my colleague Wayne should have discussed at length a lot of the drivers that have sent, you know, short and long-term drivers that have sent energy prices soaring last year. I think part of this is to do with uh, sustainability expectations. So if you look at the energy value chain, let's call it that way, it's pretty clear around the world that regulators and investors alike have been shunning the entire energy value chain. And what we have seen is that over the past years, there's been a notable decrease in investments into the oil and gas industry um, relative to, you know, pretty stable levels previously. And 
as we're looking at this and as divestment pressures continue to increase around the world, it's really not matching what our consumption habits are are you know really requiring so our research is also saying that you know even though um, renewable energy is going to accelerate we will still be reliant on fossil fuels as the predominant source of energy for the next 20 years so we can't have the investment portfolio looking very different from our consumption bill and this means that um, we do expect uh, more like greater volatility in energy prices as this decarbonization trend accelerates. And and the the secondary issue is that, you know, regulators are not just squeezing the energy sector. They're also introducing things like carbon pricing. And that, uh, you know, in Europe, the carbon prices have actually more than doubled last year alone. But if you look at where the International Energy Agency is pushing, well, estimating that prices have to get to, is $130. So that's still like another 50% increase from where European peaks were. So this is definitely going to start to feed through, spill over to downstream consumers, because when we're looking at the companies that would be stuck paying for these carbon prices, they're mainly capital goods and industrial companies where they don't really have easy options to decarbonize, which means that they're stuck paying the bill and then they will pass them on to the consumers. And finally, you know, just combining the two, you know, higher fuel costs, higher carbon price costs, higher, um, you know, energy related processing costs, all of these could actually lead to supply chain disruption feeding through. Climate risk will itself also challenge global supply chains. So combining these three drivers is where we, why we believe that, you know, decarbonization, it could be an inflationary driver uh, for the long term. Although, of course, you know, if technological developments continue to accelerate, then potentially we can get to a point where renewables and alternatives will become so cheap that it could offset these pressures that I highlighted earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I wanted to ask you a bit more about this sort of supply side, because you mentioned supply shocks there. And there are all these discussions, obviously, about various supply chain issues. And I wanted to ask you how that, I don't know, how that and other kind of cost compression, how does that take us into other parts of the ESG acronym? Because fundamentally, there's this issue, I guess, on the consumer side, that people will need to bear bear the true cost for some of the, these areas. And that's that's a very kind of live conversation right now, isn't it? Correct. And and so let's just review 2021, you know, last year and what kind of supply chain issues we've seen, right? So first we've got the chip shortage, which has extended till now. Actually, when, when the chip shortage, one of the original drivers of the chip shortage on top of like, you know, COVID and everything, it was actually the droughts in Taiwan. And that, uh, you know, that, that's also like a black swan climate event that happened, you know, in the first half of last year. So this is why I say that, you know, climate risks themselves, you know, a more volatile climate environment itself would be a threat, you know, to global supply chains. But also last year, um, we've highlighted, I mean, throughout COVID, really, we've highlighted social issues. Um, labor rights issues in the supply chain, where, you know, the definitions of essential workers and and just uh, employee protection and welfare is just not very transparent and sufficient. And 
that's one thing to talk about, you know, the, the ethics of it and the importance of having transparent and socially just supply chains. But ultimately, what the implications are is that we may be challenging some of the cost compression drivers that we've benefited from over the past decades, for example, in fast fashion, you know, Boohoo got into a lot of trouble for like um, the, the human rights, the labor rights issue. But companies like Boohoo or like, you know, other fast fashion companies like big brands, they have managed to drive down the price of high fashion items or fashionable garments dramatically over the past decade or so. And this is going to be a problem because if we're expecting them to use sustainably sourced materials to actually pay employees a fair wage, to actually um, invest in welfare, even for contract workers, this is going to translate into costs for them. And their margins are not necessarily very high already. So this is going to filter to the consumer. I think what we have seen is that if you look at the global consumer surveys, consumers do uh, say that they care about sustainability and they say that they're willing to pay a premium. On average, uh, global numbers are looking at somewhere like 35%. In Asia, where I'm based, um, it's somewhere around 10%. But I would say that firstly, these survey results are not necessarily very well matched by evidence already. And I think if it starts to come through across a broad-based consumption, uh, you know, consumption goods, this is going to be a big challenge to everyday consumers' commitment to sustainability. And I think that's, again, you know, that's where I think regulation has a part to play, technology has a part to play, and also investors have um, a part to play to actually um, invest in the areas that would um, incentivize, further incentivize and continually incentivize sustainability transitions. Stephanie Choi. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.